0: Well, good afternoon, and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. This is broadcast number... You know, that's funny, because I just looked it up before this started, and now I can't remember the number. So if everybody waits a minute, I'll let you know. Oh, it's 62. Yes, it's broadcast 62. Today is May 20th, 2014. It just goes to show you, I have not... I feel like I've just not done this very much recently. That's probably because I haven't so um if you're all laughing right now hysterically and can't pay attention just get get a control yourselves. everybody get a grip we're ready to roll <laughs> i promise but today we're going to be doing um our monthly in this case our every other month uh, edition of faith and practice this is segment number six with dr pipa who's the president of greenville seminary and in this segment we take questions from you the listener uh related to theology practical christian living and as it turns out we have uh, a wide selection of those types of questions um today so we'll be talking with him in just a minute we do want to introduce a little bit about what's going to be going on as as most of you know we are winding down the spring semester here at the seminary and uh, looking forward to a break over the summer but that doesn't mean that we stop doing everything around here we still have things to offer And so Dr. Piper is going to tell us a little bit about what is going to be happening uh, this summer at the seminary, some of the courses that we'll be uh, looking at. So Dr. Piper, if you want to um, tell the listeners, and uh, that would be great. Thank you, Bill. Good to be with you all. We have two
1: exciting courses this summer. We normally do an elective the last week of July and then a special summer institute that can function as an elective, but it's uh, broader based uh, the first week of August. the Last week of July, we have a special course by our adjunct professor, Dr. Nick Wilborn, on Southern Presbyterian theology. This course will be July 28th to August the 1st. Now what's very exciting and interesting about this course is in addition to lectures in the classroom, this course will incorporate the historic tour that Dr. Wilborn does in Columbia and Charleston. So this is a great way to have a combination vacation and time or an edifying vacation, let's put it that way. So it's open to families, others from the church. We encourage you to take advantage of this. You also may take this course for uh, seminary credit if you're one of our students or if you're a student in another seminary, we would welcome you for this. And then we normally focus on preaching at the next week in the Summer Institute, and this summer, the first week of August, and uh, Monday evening uh, through Friday noon, we're having Dr. Ray Heipel, pastor of Covenant Presbyterian Church outside of Pittsburgh, and Dr. Heipel is going to be uh, teaching on how to incorporate the motivation of the inspired preaching of the Apostles from the book of Acts, into your sermons. So we particularly encourage pastors and ruling elders, our men training for the ministry, or ruling elders would like to exhort to attend this seminar. I asked Dr. Heibel to do this because I find that in our modern-day preaching, a proper biblical motivation is often lacking. So I think this is going to be a very useful course. Hope you'll join us for these. You can go online and look uh, at gpts.edu edu to learn more about them, we have brochures available as well. So we hope to see you this summer.
0: Yeah, this, these are going to be great classes. We did, um, uh, as most of you who follow this podcast know, uh, we did a podcast uh, last week or two weeks ago. I forgot, last week. but anyway, it was broadcast sixty-one. <laughs> I got that one right at least. Uh, we did broadcast sixty-one, and uh, with Dr. Wilborn, who highlighted his um, his material, the the course that he'll be doing and uh, some of the interesting aspects of it, the tour and that kind of thing. So if you want more information about that particular summer course, you can listen to that broadcast and really get a good uh, idea right from the horse's mouth, as it were. No uh, no offense attended to Dr. Wilborn, but of course, very good discussion with him on that subject. Now, as I indicated, we'll be talking with Dr. Piper uh, on our normal monthly uh, faith and practice segment. This is number six, so we've had um, a number of questions uh, come in over uh, over the course of the last few months, and so... Uh, Today we'll be talking with him about all kinds of really, I think, interesting topics uh, of discussion that you have sent to us. So we're just going to jump right in with uh, the first question, and we're going to work our way through as far as we can go over the next 55 minutes or so. So, Dr. Pipe, I guess the first question, it's rather lengthy. Um, I guess I'll just read it as it is stated, um, and then we'll just uh, go from there. So the question, our Baptist uh, brethren—well, actually, this is from Mark— in New Mexico. Sorry, I forgot to say that part. Uh, but anyway, he writes in, "...our Baptist brethren differ from us in church polity in addition to the sacraments. They and other believers, uh, others believe that the congregational form of church polity with autonomous congregations is the quote-unquote biblical way to organize churches. I am a Presbyterian and believe our form of church government is correct, even if it doesn't always work as it seems it should." However, I'm a little muddy on the exact biblical mandate for elders or presbyters, at least beyond the local church. Can you help me understand this? Is this explicit or a doctrine we have uh, come to understand by good and necessary consequence?
1: Mark, thank you for the question. It is a very good question. We are Presbyterians because we believe the Bible reveals that Presbyterian form of government is— God's appointed government for the church. Now, when we say that, we're not saying that churches that are governed other, in other manners are not true churches, but rather we make the distinction government is not necessary for the being of the church, but the well-being. And so it is important. Now, just a couple of passages to help you as you think about this. Uh, you're asking about the plurality of elders— and you're asking about some scriptural references that would point uh, to things beyond the local church. There's an excellent little book I recommend by a Scotsman named Witherow, and it's The Apostolic Church, Which Is It? And Witherow gives six principles that are all found clearly stated in Scripture. Christ alone is the head of the church. Each church must have a plurality of elders. Elders and bishops are uh, synonymous. Uh, In the New Testament, the congregation has the right and power to elect its office bearers. There is to be the right of appeal from a lower uh, church court, like a session, to a higher court, like presbytery or general assembly, and I've left out one, but we won't worry about that, because the ones I want to focus on are the plurality of elders in each congregation. Oh, the other is ordination is always by a plurality of elders. So the plurality of elders in each congregation is quite clear in Scripture. For example, Paul addresses uh, the book of Philippians to the bishops, synonymous for elders in Philippi. He appointed elders in every city in Acts chapter 14. He told Titus to do the same thing on the island of Crete, Timothy to work with the churches for eld- getting elders appointed in First Timothy. Then we see in First Timothy that ordination is an act of a plurality of elders, 1st Timothy chapter 4 verse 14 do not neglect the spiritual gift within you which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery and here we see by a board of elders now that could simply be uh, elders in a particular congregation but when we look at cities like Jerusalem where you had Thousands of people, members of the church, they obviously were not all meeting in one place, but they had elders. And so the Jerusalem church was really a presbytery, and we know from Acts chapter 15 that they had elders who worked alongside the apostles in the governance of the church. The congregation's right to select its office bearers is important as well, but We want to consider Acts 15 a little more detail because a number of these principles come to bear here. This was the problem of the Judaizers coming out from Jerusalem by their own authority, not sent by the church. And in Acts 15, too, when Paul and Barnabas had had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren, that's the church, determined that Paul and Barnabas with some others. Now, I'm going to assume that's ruling elders. Uh, of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders. And that's why I assume that about the first part concerning this issue. So they went to Jerusalem, and verse 6, the apostles and elders came together to look into this matter. Now, this is the primary text that establishes what we would refer to as higher or upper courts in Presbyterian government. And I think it's Witherow that points out – that the Holy Spirit is clearly establishing a principle here because this is an issue the apostles could have settled on their own.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: But the Spirit leads the church to send representatives to Jerusalem where there are others, elders, joined with the apostles to debate this issue, to make a decision and to send that decision down to uh, the local church in Antioch, which was probably, it could by this point be more than one congregation as well. And so from these, we see the principle of Presbyterianism. Now, the Confession of Faith points out in chapter 1, paragraph 6, that with respect to worship and church government, there are things that we do then according to the light of nature. So Presbyterianism will vary in its different manifestations. Some churches will have just local congregations and presbytery. Some local congregations, presbyteries and a synod. Some would have a general assembly, not a synod. Really, that's just a name difference. Some larger churches should have presbyteries, synods, and general assembly. Now, that's just by the light of nature, as long as we apply those six principles. Now, this gets to the second part of your question, Understanding the Presbyterian form of government to be the best biblical model, what's the scriptural basis for a side body like the SJC and the PCA to function like a supreme court and have a final jurisdiction in matters that greatly concern the peace and purity of the church? For our listeners that are not in the PCA, the, in the PCA, the judicial process any Presbyterian church goes from the local level to the presbytery to the general assembly or synod. In the PCA, a commission, which is men elected by the Assembly, an equal amount of ruling elders and teaching elders function then as a court to hear these appeals and complaints. As it's set up in the PCA at this point, they hear it and they report, and there is a clear doctrinal deviation, they report, or a minority, uh, a dissenting opinion— The assembly does not vote on that uh, case. Now, the idea of an SJC fits the idea of the light of nature. And so that's how the PCA has determined to do its cases. But we need to modify that. And there's a number of overtures at this general assembly. We can clarify it when the assembly may debate that. So it's not wrong to a degree to have a commission to hear cases. We do that on the press trade level as well. But we need to have some way that the assembly then adopts the uh, verdict as its own by a majority vote. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Mark. Those are very important questions.
0: Yeah, very good, and appreciate you writing in um, as well. Now, our second question comes from Sanford, Florida, from Andrew um, in Sanford, Florida, and uh, it's really a two-part question, but they're similar. Uh, and, and so he uh, he writes in and, and asks, is it a violation of the Sabbath to have a wedding ceremony on Sunday? And then coupled with that, uh, he also adds, is it a violation to attend a wedding on a Sunday?
1: Andrew, thank you for the questions. We're looking forward to having you here. Andrew is uh, going to be a new student at Greenville, graduating from Reformation Bible College. And his wife, we got in the mail today, also is going to be auditing courses, which the wives of our students can audit courses free. So you both will be taking advantage of what we have here in the fall. Is it a violation of the Sabbath to have a wedding ceremony on Sunday? In my book on the Sabbath, Andrew, one of the principles I try to establish is that we get to gray areas. we, We need to ask the question, does this thing promote the purposes of the day? Now, that's a question ultimately we each have to answer for himself. Mm. But a traditional American wedding, in my opinion, does not promote the purposes of the day. There's – I think you've just gotten married. There are there are so many things that go on the day of a wedding that the bride, her family, other people, caterers, church people preparing food and all that – it really is not at all conducive to the purposes of the Lord's Day. So I would say a traditional uh, wedding ought not to be on the Lord's Day. Now, as I understand it, in Geneva, uh, Calvin would do wedding ceremonies after the morning service, but that was people simply coming and taking their vows, the vows and of religious worship. And so there was surely nothing contrary to that but the way that it's done today. So in the same way, to attend to a wedding on the Lord's Day tends to distract us from the purposes of the day. Now, I think that it is a matter of Christian liberty. I'm not going to call it a sin. So you can go if you can focus on the hymns and the vows and the um, message and... uh, the celebration with the family and keep the Lord's Day, then uh, you're you're free to do though to do so. So, mm.
0: yeah, that, it's it, that's an interesting question. Um, I have some follow-ups, but I think I'll just keep them in the back of my head for later, um, more privately. Actually, <laughs> one one would directly affect, and I think this is a legitimate question in relationship to the um, to what we do here at the seminary, training ministers for the gospel. Um, and you've been a, you're have been you a minister, uh, professor now, but you have been in the pastor at Dr. Piper. Would you personally feel comfortable officiating a wedding on the Lord's Day?
1: I wouldn't do a wedding on the Lord's Day.
0: Good. And I think because of the reasons that you yeah, already stated. right.
1: I would do a wedding. Uh, I would let a couple take their vows mm-hmm. if that's what they, if they want to do, a very simple thing after the service. But a wedding, as it's understood in our culture, I would not be comfortable doing that in the Lord's Day. Yep. And okay. I personally wouldn't go to one. But, again, I do think that that's a matter of Christian
0: liberty. Yep. Uh, before I read question three, do you want to push that to the end?
1: No, let's go ahead with you it. We've been pushing it off for a long time. Let me just say as he reads this that we've had a number of questions like this. Bill's chosen a sample representative uh, question, but um, I promise, I keep promising we're going to answer it. So I think we need to do it.
0: Okay. Well, Eric writes in from Las Vegas, Nevada, and the question is uh, has to do with the nature of the Mosaic Covenant and how it is misunderstood by those who feel that it is a reduplication of the Covenant of Works. Specifically, I've heard some folks say that the Mosaic Covenant focused upon the Israelite's spiritual standing before God rather than upon their inheritance and continued dwelling in the land. Some have suggested that those who did not inherit the land, including Moses, were also not saved or did not inherit eternal life. Could you please touch on this subject? That's one question. Now, it goes on. Does the Mosaic Covenant deal with both spiritual salvation and physical inheritance, or is it only focused on one of them? Furthermore, do those who hold to a reduplication of the covenant of works confuse the spiritual-slash-physical focus of the Mosaic Covenant? And if so, how do they confuse it? Okay. Uh, Eric, uh, a good question,
1: one with a number of others that we have uh, postponed until today. Uh, Let me give a little backdrop for our hearers, and that is this idea of reduplication or republication of the covenant of works in the Mosaic Covenant. Basically, there's three views with respect to the Mosaic Covenant, that it's simply a covenant of grace that – is just the next administration of it. It is a covenant of grace that would include a promise in it that if one kept the law of God perfectly, one could get eternal life. Of course, none can do that, and that ties into the third use of the law, to drive, or the first use of the law to drive people uh, to Christ. And then there's a more recent formulation that says that the covenant, Mosaic covenant, is actually a reissue and a republication of The covenant of works. The covenant of works was the covenant with Adam in the garden before the fall. He went through a probationary period. If he had obeyed, he would have, by God's grace, uh, earned for himself and all his posterity eternal life. If he disobeyed, then by the covenant, he would plunge himself and all his ordinary posterity into the corruption and dominion and guilt of sin, and we know he disobeyed. So because in the Mosaic Covenant we read, do this and live, the uh, school of republication has said that the Mosaic Covenant is simply a reissuing of the covenant of works. Now, you've got a twist in your question. Traditionally, they say, for the land inheritance. So Israel would enter into her inheritance Through a covenant of works. Now, if people are saying what you quote here, this is even a more serious error Mm -hmm. because they're saying that this is how uh, some would have been saved. That is introducing works back into salvation. Paul says that is another gospel and is to be accursed. I've not heard that. I hope that's not being done. So what the traditional republication view is, is that the, the land promise, the inheritance of the land, would be through the covenant of works. Salvation would still be by grace. So the Mosaic covenant would be primarily a physical covenant, and the children of Israel would have been saved uh, through God's gracious uh, covenant that he made with Adam in the fall and with Abraham. Now, the problems uh, with that, without going into the, all of, of the details, I'm going to take you to one passage of Scripture because it's, I found it to be uh, one of the clearest refutations of this concept. What they say is there's no grace provision, no oath on God's part in this covenant uh, that it's all uh, legal obligation, Oh, let me answer your other question first, uh, Eric, and that is that we there's not a cleavage between the spiritual and the physical in the old covenant. The physical was a type, so the land inheritance was a type of the full covenant promises. Now, in the new and and the spiritual is there. I'll be your God, and you'll be my people. And you'll remember that Exodus 19 begins with that. In the new covenant. The physical is still there, but the order has changed. The spiritual is the primary emphasis now. The physical still here, but secondary. So I wouldn't want to divide between the two. They're both, though, by God's grace. So in Exodus chapter 34, after the sin of the golden calf, God first threatens to destroy the people. He's testing Moses. Moses prays for them. God says, I'll spare them. And he says, but I'm going to send you to the land. I'm not going to go with you. Again, testing Moses. Moses prays, if you don't go, I'm not going. These are your people. And really, the land without God was nothing. God said, I will go. Moses, knowing that it's a sinful people, then responds, show me your glory. Give me some pledge that you're not going to leave this people. God said, I can't show you uh, my essence but I will cause my glory to pass by before you, and I will proclaim my name. So he puts him in the cleft of the rock, which itself is a type. The Mosaic Covenant is full of types, a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. He covers his face. Moses sees a little something, but that's not what he tells us about because he's concerned with revelation of what we hear, not what we see. And so he says that as he called on the name of the Lord in worship— In verse 6 of Exodus 34, the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth. I'm not going to go on here in any great detail. Just get a concordance, and I think you're going to be surprised that this list, either this is the first use of these attributes in the Bible, or they've only been used two or three times before. So here in the Mosaic Covenant, God says his glory is his goodness. His goodness is broken down in terms of compassion, grace, long-suffering, loving kindness, and faithfulness. Then Moses prays, and in verse 10, God says, Behold, I'm going to make a covenant before all your people. Now, this is not a new covenant, because he then says in verse 27— Write down these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you in Israel. This is simply the renewal of the covenant, summarized in the ten words of the Ten Commandments, which themselves were acts of grace, not acts of legality. So what's interesting is the Mosaic Covenant, in the history of redemption, is the first clear revelation of these tender attributes of God. So obviously, it cannot be republication of the covenant of works. It is a clear new level of revelation on the covenant of grace. Now, Lord willing, our conference this next March, so you all mark your calendars now, is going to be on the law of God. There's a lot of issues on the table we want to address. One is the antinomianism of So many different groups out there today, which means a a denial of the role of the Mosaic law uh, in the lives of Christians. Another one is the relationship of uh, laws, uh, of um, the equity of the law with respect to counseling. Uh, I'm going to deal with this issue of the republication of the Mosaic covenant. And so try to give a fair presentation of what is being taught and expand on this refutation that I've offered today. We'll also have a number of positive sermons on the role of law in the lives of God's people today. So mark it, second full week of March here at the seminary, and join us, or in Greenville, join us for this conference.
0: Excellent, and great segue into the the yearly conference that we do put on here. Um, And as Dr. Puypah said, mark your calendars now, start thinking about it, It's really going to be good, especially if you are in the social networking world right now. There's a big deal going on between a couple guys on this particular issue, the law, antinomianism. And so if you're on Facebook and you follow the the heavy hitters, as it were, and the various reform camps, you know what I'm talking about. And so it's really a time, uh, a great time to deal with this. And so, and
1: if you don't know what he's talking about, don't go find out, because it's not a good place to do <laughs> theological discussion, anyway. <laughs> yeah,
0: we've had, we actually had this discussion in the Systematic Theology class, um, which I tend to agree with Dr. Piper. I don't think you can debate these issues on Facebook, but... Regardless, uh, the, the discussion is there anyway if you want to be uh, at least aware of the issue, whether you engage in debate or not. That's up to you if you get the time uh, to do that. So yeah. anyway, next question. Um, I think this is the first time, Dr. Piper, we've received an anonymous. In fact, I'm pretty sure it is.
1: And I want anonymous's book.
0: And he doesn't want a book either.
1: But I want his book or her book.
0: Oh, you want the book? Well, yeah. The man has a 10,000-volume library. He wants the book. He probably already has all the books that I'm offering, but that's okay. He can have the book. Doesn't, I was going to yeah. give it away. It, it doesn't matter. I mean, he's the president of the seminary. He can have whatever he wants. Oh. <laughs> but that, that's on record. I'll have to edit that out. From you. I'll have to edit that out. The board meets Thursday. They would have a different opinion. Yeah, I'll have to (laughs) edit that out. Well, from the student's perspective, he can have anything he wants. There, how about that? I'll qualify. But here's the question. It's a good one. Um, It's one that I've actually um, had uh, numerous discussions over, uh, frankly, um, and I'm just not sure. But uh, anyway, here's the question. Reformed believers are rightly skeptical of parachurch organizations because they sometimes undermine the authority of the church— and the ordinary means of grace. How would you advise or caution a college student involved in a campus ministry such as CRU, I'm not familiar with that, or intervarsity, particularly if there is no RUF ministry nearby? How would you advise a young adult from a non-Christian home who desires one-on-one formal discipleship that does not seem to be available in his church, and in this case a solid Reformed PCA church, thanks very much. I enjoy the podcast and especially the faith and practice segments.
1: Thank you anonymous. very good question. I want to begin with an important doctrine that has historically been referred to as the spirituality of the church. Mm. stated in the Westminster Confession of Faith chapter 25 paragraph three unto this Catholic visible church so we're not talking about the body of Christ, in an amorphous, non-organized way, but the Catholic visible church, Christ hath given the ministry, oracles, and ordinances for the gathering and perfecting of the saints in this life to the end of the world. And doth by his own presence and spirit, according to his promise, make them effectual thereunto. Now this is a glorious statement because it reminds us that Christ has appointed the visible church as the agency for the gathering and perfecting of the elect and has given to the visible church everything she needs for that task, namely ministry, the Word of God, and the special ordinances caught up in corporate worship, preaching, the sacraments, uh, pastoral care, church discipline, things like that. So it's a very important doctrine, and RUF was actually started, and I had a role in that in Mississippi because of our commitment to the spirituality of the church, believing that we wanted to have the PCA, Presbyterian Church in America, um, on campuses, and to start an RUF chapter initially, you had to have a church in that campus town that the students that wanted to. Could be plugged into. Now, we would have students come from other church backgrounds, but Presbyterian students and others that were converted were channeled into a local PCA church. And so the question rightly distinguishes what we do with RUF on a campus, which is under the church, the Presbyterian Church in America, to whom this responsibility has been given. Then we have the pragmatic question. So it's students Mm -hmm. on a campus where there's not such a ministry. Well, I realize for some it's too late to answer the question. When my then children were ready to go off to college or university, I said they'd been to Christian school for the entire time through 12th grade. You don't have to go to a Christian college. You must go to a college where there is a church and an RUF chapter on campus. You see, we make so many decisions today divorced from uh, our spiritual needs. Men take job transfers without ever considering, is there a good church in this town for my family? And so we need to back up and start making decisions, career decisions, movement decisions, university decisions, factoring in the spiritual needs of ourselves and if we're married, of our families. So that's the first way. Then pragmatically, you are in a place where either there's no campus ministry or you're, you need to be a disciple. Let me separate these. Christian fellowship is good, so I'm not going to tell a young person don't go to uh, one of these Bible studies or fellowship groups because they are parachurch organizations. But I wouldn't go to a, a non-reformed one. So, and we have to be very careful, because some are outright Armenian, Some are very antagonistic uh, mm. to the local church and take to themselves prerogatives of the local church. And uh, others are getting liberal. So you're going to have to exercise a good bit of discernment Uh, with regard to that. But Christian fellowship is good. But it's much more important at the university for the young person to get into a church than it is into a campus group. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, yes, I'm not saying don't do the other, but your priority should be to be involved in a local church. And if there's not a Reformed church there, get involved in the Uh, The best evangelical church you can find that has decent worship and preaching. And commit yourself to being a part of that body. Get to know those people. Be in those homes and families. Then the young adult from a non-Christian home who desires discipleship. I would not seek that from, um, again, a parachurch organization. Now, you use the word a solid reformed PCA church. Well, I would encourage the person to go to the, their elder or the pastor and say, I want to be a disciple. Would you please have somebody disciple me? Mm-hmm. If the church says no, then I begin to question if they're really a solid uh, reformed church. Although discipleship is uh, a important missing ingredient today in many of our better Reformed churches. I just gave a seminar on that up in Canada to a group of office bearers from another uh, denomination, and I gave a seminar at a PCA assembly. That's actually would be available then if you went and looked at those on the importance of discipleship. It's very important, underrated in our Reformed churches. Now, I do have a bit of help for you. I have written a book uh, on discipleship. It's called studies in the Westminster Confession, but it's actually a book of discipleship that is a series of topical, inductive Bible studies keyed to the Westminster Standards. It goes through all of the doctrines and practices of the Christian faith for a new Christian or someone new to the Reformed faith. If you want to do that, it's got the answers in the back. So if somebody doesn't feel competent to take you through it, then just say, go through it with me. And the two of you do that. Then the two of you are going to be equipped to do that uh, with uh, someone else as well. So you can get that book on Amazon. You can get it through the seminary bookstore. And it's been written for that very purpose uh, to help us in this work of discipleship. But we need a wake-up call. The reason we have paired church organizations is the church wasn't doing its work. And we need to get active in evangelism and discipleship. Uh, in our communities, in our neighborhoods, on the campuses that are around us. Mm
0: -hmm. Very good. And a very important issue, um, especially in our climate today. Hillary writes in from Germany. Uh, I think she's written in before. Um, In fact, I know she has. And she has a different question this time, of course. Uh, It's on the subject of uh, communion the Lord's Supper. So here's the question. I find the typical practice of monthly communion puzzling. There's always someone who will be working in the nursery absent due to illness or absent for work, police, fire, military. She (laughs) qualifies that. Uh, When I was serving in the reserves, I, I could end up going for months without this particular means of grace. Is there a good biblical reason for churches to only offer communion once a month? I see many articles in defense of weekly communion, and it appears to me from Scripture that weekly communion was the practice of the early church, but haven't seen any defense for monthly communion. Are the reasons simply pragmatic, and are these reasons adequate to explain the practice of the church?
1: Hillary, uh, thank you. It's always good to hear from you. I pray for you and Steve and the boys regularly. Uh, what you might not be aware of is that monthly communion is a huge advance on what was going on when I was uh, uh, in college and uh, in early ministry. Presbyterians inherited the policy of quarterly communion, and you're still going to find a lot of churches that have a quarterly communion. So monthly communion has been a great blessing in our churches. And the important confessional element is that we should have frequent communion. And that is expressed, uh, for example, in the Westminster Directory of Worship, the first paragraph on the celebration of communion. The communion or supper of the Lord is frequently to be celebrated, but how often? may be considered and determined by the ministers and other church governors of each congregation as they shall find most convenient for the comfort and edification of the people committed to their charge. Now, I um, actually have evolved in this uh, area. I agree with you that there's biblical warrant for the practice of weekly communion, and it appears to have been a practice in the early church. I don't know that there is a biblical requirement for weekly communion. So, what I've said pastorally over the years is that if you've got a mature congregation that won't try to push out other parts of worship or shorten the sermon or rush through the Lord's Supper, I think weekly communion is wonderful. But uh, you don't have a lot of those kind of congregations, even in those that practice weekly communion, something often gets short shrift. Mm. So what I used to say, though, is is that it is practicable. I've shared with my students, I've actually changed on this in the last few months by being interim supply at a church that has weekly communion where there's a full worship, full preaching, and a time of real meditation and communion at the table. I fell in love with communion a lot more. I appreciate communion a lot more now. And so I still say it takes a mature congregation, but now I would say that I had encouraged my students, and if I were a pastor, that would be a goal, Mm -hmm. to move a church to weekly communion. First step, I think, is to go to um, twice a month, once in the morning and once in the evening. And then I've recommended, if you do weekly communion, have it once in the morning and rest of the time in the evening service, where you can actually um, have a little bit of a truncated service without doing disservice to the worship, and you're going to have your more faithful people there. And it also teaches people the importance of, of evening worship. And the church needs to be sensitive. So if, in fact, there's someone that's missing regularly because it's morning, then they should, if they're doing monthly, alternate morning and evening. I know the church I attend has that practice. But it should be our prayer and our desire, I think, to see our churches go at least twice a month and to move toward the idea of weekly communion.
0: Mm. Really great question. And and I echo Dr. Piper's uh, comments uh i think growing up oh it was probably once a month as the most frequent situation i was in growing up um my first experience with a weekly communion was uh, at my uh, church the church in virginia uh which i thoroughly enjoyed um and it was evening morning evening morning alternating um and it was a huge blessing to look forward to that each week um and uh In anticipation really of that whole process the next question comes in again from over the pond Uh, um, david writes in from england and he uh, has a question here Um, anyway well here's the question trying to decipher these (laughs) strange characters that get stuck in sometimes Uh, what would you say to christians who are planning to see the new son of god movie or who hope it will be useful for the purpose of evangelism."
1: Thanks, David. Well, if they asked me, I would say don't go. The Second Commandment's quite clear mm-hmm. that we're not to make images of God. The larger Catechism 109 says of, any of the Trinity or any of the three persons. That includes the Lord Jesus Christ. We had this discussion when the passion of Christ came out, same problems then. Well, he had a human nature. If you lived on the earth when he was there, so we're told, then you would have had a visual picture of him. That's true, uh, and it would have been an accurate and true picture of him. But he, as such, was the revelation of the Godhead. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. God condescended for a period of time to reveal himself in the flesh, He didn't leave Christ on the earth. He didn't leave any pictures of Christ or any descriptions of Christ on the earth. We're governed by the second commandment. And so I think we should not see a film like that. And I think it's preposterous to say we're going to take a non-Christian to it or use it for the purpose of evangelism. You don't break one of God's laws to accomplish another of God's commandments. So I, I... would not do that. It's very interesting. You go back and look at the classics like Ben-Hur or Barabbas. They never had any physical uh, representation of Christ. You might see him from the distance. You see him from the back. A robe, but no distinguishing characteristics. So even then, the, cult, the broader culture was aware that one should not do that. Now we've got Christian schools that have Christian art collections that actually do the living representations of of Christian art, and have students dressed up like Christ out of those pictures. So we've uh, we've gone down a long ways, but your your intuitions are correct on this, David.
0: Yeah, very good question, and and, and really practical because again, uh, because of social media. <laughs> dr. Piper's favorite topic um because of social media, you see lots of conversations related to these issues and um boy, I'll tell you what happens when you say something like what Dr. Pipa just said <laughs> on these subjects i mean it's like you you're opposing you know the gospel you don't care about the souls of people it's it's bizarre um and so th- these are relevant issues and um I remember when The Passion of the Christ came out, uh, my children were little at the time, littler anyway, and uh, uh, we had a family discussion about it, and I had them listen to a sermon by Al Martin, who directly uh, dealt with this, that, that very subject, and it was so instrumental, and, and perhaps you can find it on Sermon Audio, because um, it, it's the same issue. It was so instrumental that when my children finished listening to Al Martin's sermon, they didn't want to see the movie anymore. So maybe you can dig that up on Sermon Audio. Um, I think it's just titled The Passion of the Christ. Should you see the movie or something to that effect, Pastor L. Martin uh, delivered that sermon, and as I said, it was very instrumental. Uh, Joel writes in from uh, Lyndon, Washington, and he has two questions. Uh, they're somewhat related. Uh, the first question is, which is, uh, which is more instrumental in the salvation of the believer Christ's active or passive obedience are they equally so and why now let's do that one first okay bill you got 20 minutes all right thank you joel
1: uh the answer is yes <laughs> uh we can't separate we ought not try to separate the active and passive obedience of christ for the sake of our broader audience the terms are technical terms Active obedience refers to Christ actively keeping the law of God, passive obedience to his uh, suffering, uh, the miseries, and uh, the satisfying the justice of God in his uh, death, burial uh, on the cross, uh, death on the cross, and burial. But all of that's part of the work of Christ, the mediator. And so all that he did as the mediator is absolutely necessary for our uh, conversion and for the covenant demands. Remember that the covenant of works with Adam demanded perfect obedience and Mm -hmm. said, if you sin, you shall die. So we're under the consequences of that broken covenant. Christ had to do both of those things in order for us to be delivered. Again, the larger catechism, I just commend it to you to go look at the section on Christ as mediator, It is a very, as all the larger catechism, very useful uh, in helping to frame our thinking with respect to the work of Christ. It starts with question 36, larger catechism, who is the mediator of God's elect? And it goes down through um, 42 why was our mediator called Christ? how does he execute the office of prophet, priest, and king, 43 through 45, and then it breaks down his exaltation, humiliation. So that's a very useful section to follow up on. Now, Joel's follow-up question is the union with Christ, does union with Christ occur before or after justification? Union with Christ is the basis of our justification and our sanctification. Calvin called it the double act of grace, the duplex gratia. So that uh, as it's spelled out in the uh, application of redemption, again, in the Westminster Standards, when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we do that because we've been born again. We believe in Christ. That faith brings us into this living union with Christ. The Spirit of Christ indwells us. We are justified on the basis of union with Christ. And we are adopted on the basis of union with Christ, and our sanctification grows out of our union with Christ and the seed of righteousness that's been put in us at our regeneration. There are those today that teach that sanctification grows out of justification. I think that really is um, an improper expression.
0: Yeah, very good question, Joel, and um and I appreciate um the question. Uh it, it's important I think to keep these things straight. I, I mean, I've heard that before. Uh you know, what's more important? The active or passive obedience and it's always like, huh? <laughs> it, it, they're both important. Um, and as it as it was as it is very necessary. Our last question for today um comes from this must be the um the day of foreign questions a lot of them three out of the eight that we're dealing with were from i think three yeah three out of the eight were from uh, overseas in some respect um but this one comes from virginia she writes in from brazil uh and i'm just going to read this uh, as it is uh, understand this is not english is not her first language so bear with me um and i will do the best i can um As I read it, but she says we live in bad times when people blame situations and not their hearts. We can see feminism, feministic influences rooted in our society. Sometimes we act as feminists and forget to check what the scriptures say about a determined subject. My question is about the women women uh, about the women women's life life in the home and churches. Is it correct uh, for women uh, that women work out of her home? to support financially her home, or to pay someone else to watch her kids and her husband while she uh, works outside the home. Proverbs 31 tells us about the wise woman that was a helper to her husband that supplied the need of her household in verses 13 through 15. But how this works... uh, Forgive me, I'm doing the best I can. Uh, How this works... With her being submissive. With her being submissive of the leadership of her husband.
1: Okay, Virginia, a very... Important question that's got a number of uh, parts to it. I want to back up and take the big picture. In the first place, a lot of this has to do with the whole doctrine of vocation and calling. So, you see, marriages where you've got a woman on a career track and her husband on a career track. That's wrong. A woman was made to be a helper corresponding to the needs of her husband, so they are a team or a partner. A wife's vocation is to be, first, above all else, wife, mother, homemaker, provider, helping her husband pursue his vocation. Now, men, that means that you need to include your wives in your vocation as counselors and those that would pray for you and encourage you, and when you're discouraged— You share, and you work together as partners, and the home becomes a refuge, a place for the man to come from being beaten up so often in the world uh, into a little bit of heaven. Now, that implies, then, that a woman has got significant home responsibilities. The home needs to be neat and orderly and pleasant, so the husband uh, delights in coming home. And so Paul... When he talks about uh, young widows, <laughs> that was anybody under sixty, um, in First Timothy chapter five, he tells them to uh, get married. And uh, verse fourteen, I want younger widows to get married. Now I was joking about under sixty. He does make sixty the kind of the breakoff point there, but women over sixty may remarry as well. But notice, get married, bear children, keep house. And the word there is to be the house mistress and give the enemy no occasion for reproach. So part of Paul's domestic responsibilities there for a widow that remarries is she's to be a homemaker. She's to be the mistress of her house. And then we get to Titus, We pull in our question here of discipleship. Older women are to disciple younger women in Titus 2, verse 4, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, etc. So we see that this being a helper corresponding to the needs of the husband is to be a homemaker, And one who then, from the Titus list, has a responsibility primarily to her husband, and to be the principal provider for children. Now, the husband is ultimately responsible for the well-being of wife and children spiritually, but the mother is going to be the primary contact in terms of discipline, nurture, rearing, those various Responsibilities. So, in the first place, a, a Christian wife needs to define her role in terms of the biblical role that God has given to her. Now, I'm glad you mentioned Proverbs 31. Mm-hmm. Being a home mistress does not mean that she may not work outside the home. That lady uh, was a very busy, mm-hmm. uh, profit making woman. She managed a great household, but notice as well, she also had uh, servants. If you have servants, you can do a bit more (laughs) than uh, many can today. But um, there's a couple of principles to keep in mind. Working outside the home, she needs to be the kind of woman who has the energy and the emotional um, makeup that it would not detract from her home responsibilities. Some women are going to need to be single-mindedly devoted to family to keep in their house, and such as that. Others, and I have one that works for me, and she doesn't have young children at home, but I'm amazed at what she does, both in terms of keeping her home, working at the seminary, and being given the hospitality, which is also something that's not just elders' wives, but uh, Christians are to be exercising. And so it'll depend on the woman, but it should always be subsidiary. That's the first thing. Now there can be times, for example, a couple at seminary that have no children. If that woman they agree that she can work while he's in seminary and he can devote himself to his studies, that's not wrong either. Now when that takes place the the young man has a responsibility to pitch in and do I would say over 50%, at least half, of the household chores. She's not to be expected to support him in seminary, so he can sit around and study all the time, and she do housework and cook and have that job. Now, if a woman has young children, she needs to be at home with them. Mm. That's the norm. Now, we recognize that a woman deserted by her husband or widowed might have to take a job outside the home uh, in order to support herself. Now, I think the church needs to come alongside her where, at best, I mean, at least the church would take care of the children for her, uh, or they would get her set up in a home-type business, which is what you really see in Proverbs chapter 31, or they would support her so she wouldn't have to work. But the norm is that the woman is home with her children, and then as they're older in school, and she has that energy to be out and to be doing other things, and the couple agree that this is, is good, then um, uh, that's surely a matter of liberty. But I tell people don't ever, outside that one time when you're in, in school or graduate school or seminary, And the wife becomes the primary supporter for that brief period of time. In all other instances, do not use the wife's income to live on. Mm. Don't buy a house that's dependent upon the wife's income in addition to the husband. Don't live off that income. Uh, Put it away. Save it. Use it for special occasions. If she later on wants to redecorate redecorate the house or or whatever— um, uh, with with that money. But when you get in the habit of living on that, uh, then you get a lot of other temptations that come to bear as well. And I know that's the ideal because a lot of places in the world today you almost have to have both incomes even to survive uh, financially. So I'm talking about the ideal, but if a woman sees her role as, as a helper corresponding to the needs of her husband, her primary role then is to be wife, mother, Homemaker and keeper, but she is free to work outside the home as long as that's not dooring the children out to the daycare or whatever. And even you know with little children, I've known, and I think good types of, of, of jobs for women are nursing and teaching. Uh, nursing, I've, I've known women that they could do two night shifts a whole week, get full salary, full benefits. And the husband's home at night with the children. Mm-hmm. She puts them to the bed. She works the 11 to 7 shift. And uh, that's ideal. Teaching. She can lay out the bit of time when her kids are not in school. And then once they're in school, her hours and their hours uh, at home become uh, fairly uh, the, the same. Uh, now, there's a lot of home businesses. A lot can be done with computers and and uh, uh, things that where women can also uh Work and use their gifts to help the family uh, for its financial goals.
0: Yep. It's a very good question, very practical. One of the things that I've seen, and, and perhaps Dr. Pipe has seen this as well, um, where you have the dual income situation where the wife is, is almost forced to work outside the home because of debt, mm-hmm. trying to keep up with the Joneses. They have to have the newest car on the, on the block and the biggest house and the nicest whatever. And, you know, then the children end up, su- end up suffering at some level because of this mad chaos that goes on with debt and, 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 and financial responsibilities that you've incurred because of those issues. And um, in- instead of keeping what Dr. Pepe has just said, the- those critical priorities in front of you, your children, your home, hospitality, those issues. And um, so that's what I've witnessed um, throughout my short life. Uh, here that's a bit short compared to well uh, we won't go there <laughs> I want to still be a student next semester I'll just be quiet right now anyway well that concludes um, the list of questions they were very good um, uh, very good today uh, a wide spectrum of uh, of topics and, uh, and points of discussion so what I need from your listeners at this point is to send us more questions uh, we have pretty much I think tapped out the bank Of questions that I've had stored up and and we've gone through. So it's very simple. Just go to the confessingourhope.com website. That's confessingourhope, all one word, .com. There's a a link right there at the top in the menu. You click on the faith and practice questions. You click on that. You simply submit your question. You will get a confirmation of your question sent to your email, as well as one will come to me, and then we'll put it in the the pool uh, for next month. Uh, to then deal with at that time so send your questions in and as you do um, we have a, a list of books that we're giving away for nothing uh, you send your question if we read it on the air we will send you a book uh, of your choosing it, it as it pertains to the list that i have there on the website so get your questions in um, whatever it may be uh, you've heard some samples of the types of questions we'll deal with so there's really no rules as it were uh, we have the we have veto power, <laughs> if necessary. So, But send your questions in, and we'll be glad to deal with them as the Lord enables us. Uh, what's coming up on the podcast? I'm not exactly sure. Um, we're still working out some uh, ideas. Uh, we want to talk with uh, uh, Dr. Piper and Dr. Wilborn on the subject that we've somewhat talked about today on the subject of elders and deacons and, and officers in the church. We want to get to that hopefully in the next few weeks Uh, We also want to speak with Dr. Wilborn about uh, something that he's uh, very actively involved in with uh, the Confessional Presbyterian Theological Journal, Uh, so we want to talk with him about that as well. So those are some of the things that we have on the horizon uh, in the very near future. If you want to find out more about the podcast, you can go to ConfessingOurHope.com. All the past episodes are there, in addition to the GPTS mobile app that not only has the podcast— But it has our theological, our our theology conferences, even the most recent one of this year is now there and available for you uh, on the go uh, to listen to. In addition to that, the chapel sermons and other uh, special lectures are also available uh, on the app, as well as news events and and things that are happening up to date here at the seminary. I just spent the other day uh, updating all of that uh, across the board. So use that to your advantage. So until next time. We do thank you for listening to this particular edition, Faith and Practice, segment number six. And I hope it's been a blessing to you. And we do thank you for listening to this podcast. And God bless.